Let's take our Bibles and turn in them uh, to the book of Isaiah. We're going to, you know, chop down a couple of chapters today, okay? Uh, guys, there, you realize there's like 60, 61 chapters, something like that, in the book of Isaiah, right? So, I mean, we got to start chopping some chapters at some point, right? We're going to be here for a long, long time, and this is a good time to do that because we're, he's in a passage where he's basically just speaking of God's judgment on the nations. <clears throat> and I mean, that's uh, apropos because I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of ripe for the picking as a country, aren't we? I mean, it's, uh, it's sad, but true, the spiritual plight that we find ourselves in presently. But the title of the message, Suffering Sin and sorrow. So let's take our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Father, we just want to say thank you for your grace and your mercy and for gathering us here today presently, whether we're uh, here personally or, or maybe online, whatever the case may be, God. We just thank you for your goodness uh, to speak to us wherever we are, whatever we may do and right, may be doing, just right where we're at. And so to that end, Lord, we pray as always, give us ears to hear you and hearts that have the, uh, the unction, the desire to want to respond appropriately to you, God. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Guys, so here we are. And in our present passage, as Isaiah is prophesying, uh, war clouds are gathering uh, in the north. The Assyrian army is mobilizing. They're preparing to move out in an effort to actually conquer the known world. But what they don't realize is that God is using them as his instrument of judgment upon the nations. And not only will God use them to bring judgment to several nations around Israel, he will also use them to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel, and then in part uh, Judah, which would be the southern kingdom as well. Then they themselves will be judged by God as well. Listen, God will bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation to account. Uh, there are times it seems as though wickedness will never end. You know, it's like it's just going to go on and on forever. But God assures us that when a man or when a people or when a nation through sin, fills up the wine cup of his wrath. He will press it to their lips. He will force them to drink it down to the dregs. God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Well, here in chapters 15 and 16, Isaiah prophesies against Moab. If you want to know where that's at on the map, it would be modern-day Jordan, okay? So let's look beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15, the book of Isaiah. We read, The burden against Moab, because in the night R of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night Ker, or Kir, however you say, of Moab is laid waste 
and destroyed. So Ar and Kerr, I'll just say, are cities. Okay, I guess I should have prepared a map for you so you could see it. But they're, they're cities in the region of Moab that Isaiah is prophesying that will utterly be utterly leveled. Now, guys, I think that there are times that we can read through these passages. We have that sense of being like two degrees removed, you know, some cases maybe 20 degrees removed from these situations as we read them. And so we just kind of hear it, we read it, we move past it, and that's that. But Isaiah tells us here in verse 1 that it is a burden. And then he tells you, because... You see, the burden against Moab, and we've spoken of this before, it's, it's a heavy word that's hard for him to bear. It's, it's hard for him to share. I mean, if you wanted to bring it right to your, I guess, your, your own backyard, you, you might think like, you know, St. Louis, Missouri is laid waste and destroyed, and in the night, Kansas City is laid waste, and Springfield and Joplin will cry out and wail. Everyone will weep bitterly, you see. For Isaiah, this wasn't some distant land far, far far away. No, this was just kind of, it was like right across the, the southern portion of the Dead Sea. And they, we use the word, you know, when you hear the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea, they use these words sea in Hebrew because there was no word that just meant like lake. It's not like, don't think of like the Pacific Ocean. You can see from one side to the other of the Dead Sea. It's a, so the area of Moab is just kind of across the way there, you see. And so this, this is like connected. There's something, there's a, this is a visceral kind of, it's, he sees with his eyes kind of a thing. Now, we've spoken of Babylon, okay? And we've spoken, we've made mention of the Philistines. But who is Moab? Well, the story of Moab is actually born quite literally out of tragedy uh, on more than one level. The Moabites were actually related to the Israelites in that Moab was the son of, anyone know? He was the son of Lot, very good, whoever said that, give yourself a gold star, uh, who was Abraham's nephew. Perhaps you can recall or you're at least familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And how that God sent a couple of angels there to rescue Lot and his family before the city was destroyed. And as you know, as they were fleeing the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife turned around and she became an, a pillar of salt. She turned around that she might kind of look back on what it was that she was losing. And instantly she was turned to a pillar of salt. What's the lesson there for you and me? Listen. When God delivers you out of the world, don't look back. Okay, listen to me. Nothing good comes from looking back upon the life that you left behind. Chasing the what if trail. No, listen, Jesus was clear. When we grab hold of the plow, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and move straight ahead. The Bible says that we're to set our eyes on things above, not on things on the earth, right? You know, whatever things are good, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely or of good report, meditate, think on, keep your focus on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, be that as it may, uh, Lot 
took refuge. And, and it makes sense, doesn't it? The God of peace will be with you if you keep in your eyes and your mind set on good things, lovely things, uh, uh, virtuous things, things of good report, things that are praiseworthy. Because what's the alternative? You're setting your mind on the, the, the political shenanigans, the, the, the crime, and uh, the different things happening in the schools or whatever the case may be. And then, I mean, who's going to have peace in that? And so you kind of got to follow the flow, understand, you know, we need to set our eyes on things above, maintain the eternal perspective. Anyway, be that as it may, Lot takes refuge with his daughters in this cave up in the mountains after the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And uh, the, his daughters, thinking that they were perhaps the last living souls on earth, actually they get their dad drunk, not once, but twice, so that they might sleep with him. And each of them uh, becomes pregnant uh, incestuously uh, through Lot. Now, one of the children's name was Ammon, uh, who became the father of the Ammonites. And the other child's name was Moab, who became the father of the Moabites. Now, on the one hand, history would prove that the Moabites would contend with Israel. They would be great enemies of Israel. Uh, it was the Moabite king. How many of you, uh, this name strikes a chord in your heart, Balak or Balaam? Either of those names ringing a bell just somewhere in the back of your mind? Like, I think I've heard that, somewhat familiar with that. Well, it was Balak, the Moabite king, who hired Balaam, a prophet, to come and curse Israel as they were making their way across the wilderness, as they were doing in the midst of their wilderness wanderings, because the Moabites were worried. The Israelites, guys, they were, when they were delivered from Egypt, it wasn't like a handful or a couple of hundred folks or a thousand folks. It was like in the upwards of two, 2.6, 2.2 million people who were making their way through the wilderness. And they were afraid the Moabites seeing them come through, they were afraid they would hit the Moabite territory like a, land of, like a horde of locusts and just absolutely drain the land of all their resources and all of that. And so they hired this prophet to come and to curse them uh, that uh, you know they might uh, come against them. Well, it didn't work. Why? Because God was for them. And as you well know, if God be for you, then... Who can be against you, right? But what he did do, what Balaam did do, was he gave Balak a little insight. He's like, I can't curse them uh, because God hasn't cursed them, and whom God hasn't cursed, you just can't curse. And uh, he said, but what I can do is teach you how to invoke the wrath of God, have them invoke the wrath of God upon themselves. And so he's the one who informed uh, Balak, like, send the Moabite women down into the camp, start seducing them, start elicit, you know, relationships with them and that will provoke God you know and that's exactly what he did but that was uh, one of the encounters between the Moabites and the Israelites another time uh, during the judges there was another Moabite king Eglon was his name and he oppressed Israel for 18 years now when Israel got a king I hope it's okay I'm rehearsing this history for you but when Israel had their first king Saul Saul would contend with the Moabites when David became king uh, he defeated Moab but David's son Solomon actually would pers be persuaded by uh, his wives, one of his wives, to build an altar to Moab's God. Now, who was Moab's God? His name was Chemosh 
Or another name that might sound familiar that you might know him by is Molech. Now, Molech was the god who was like half bull, half man, and he, they would make an altar, and they'd put this kiln underneath him like this, and the kiln would serve like a, kind of as his throne, and his arms would be stretched out like this, and he was worshipped through child sacrifice. They would, uh, put, uh, they would heat the kiln up behind him, underneath him, and when his arms would turn cherry red, they would take the child and lay the child on his arms. And then they would be, there would be all this tribal you know, uh, music and dr- to drown out the screams of the children, but this, they would hope that this would invoke some sort of favor uh, from their God, bring them peace, uh, whatever, or you know, fruitful uh, year, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so there was some real historical contention between Moab and Israel. But on the other hand, there was a strange kind of curious connection between Israel and Moab. Now, as I already mentioned, they were related to Moab through Lot, and the fact that Lot was Abraham's nephew. Now, Abraham was Isaac's dad, and Isaac was Jacob's dad, and Jacob would have his name changed by God to Israel. You Bible students, I love it. And so there was some relation there. And God told Moses when they were in their wilderness journey that they were not to take the land of Moab because God had given it to them being descendants of Lot, okay? But even beyond that, uh, Israel's greatest king, who was Israel's greatest king? Yeah, David, King David. He was actually one quarter Moabite. Did you realize that? Uh, his grandmother was a Moabitess, and her name was, yeah, who said it? Good job, what way to go. Her name was Ruth, as in the book of Ruth. In fact, when David was living as a fugitive, uh, you know, when he was fleeing from Saul, he took his mom and dad into the territory of Moab. He spoke to the king of Moab, and he placed them under his protection until he knew how things were going to turn out. And so there's both contention and connection, all right, between Israel and Moab. And so there's a little bit different flavor in Isaiah's writing here. With the Babylonians, though the word was heavy, it was a burden, uh, he kind of just shot straight. But with Moab, we're going to see there's a sense of empathy, with the way that Isaiah is writing. His heart breaks for what's to come upon them and this destruction uh, that will level them. So look here, verse 2, it says, He has gone up. So why, what's the burden? Well, it's because of uh, the, the Moab will be laid waste, are and cur in the night. They'll be destroyed. He has gone up to the temple uh, and Dibon to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Medeba. Again, these are cities, these are areas, these are regions, okay? Uh, on uh, all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. 
In their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth and on the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone will wail weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Elia, uh, how do you say, Elia will cry out. Their voice uh, shall be heard as far as Jahaz. This was miles and miles away. In other words there will be a radical weeping and wailing. Uh, Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out and his life will be burdensome to him, the soldier's life. The picture here is one of uh, absolute desperation and helplessness, okay? In verse 2 he says, they'll run up to the temple to the high places to weep. Now, I've mentioned this to you before in passing, but to make it a bit more formal, We read in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, to the high places. From whence comes my help, or from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Guys, the psalmist is not saying that he will lift his eyes up you know, to the hills, eyes up to God. You know, now that, that paints kind of a beautiful poetic picture uh, for us, but that's not where he's going with that. You know, I'm going to just lift my eyes up and, 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 and think about, you know, God as I gaze upon the beauty of creation in the hills or the mountains or whatever the case may be. And it kind of draws me closer to God when I'm out in nature and looking over. Like, that's not, that's not at all where the psalmist is going with this. He's comparing and contrasting truth and lie. You see, in the ancient world, pagans would build their altars, their places of sacrifice, on hilltops, on high places. They thought it made them closer to their gods. They would go up to the high places and build their altars there and everything. And that's where they would go when they needed help. But the psalmist is saying, I look up there to those hills, but that's not where my help comes from. You see, my help comes from the Lord, the one who made those hills, the creator of heaven and earth. Question, where does your help come from in time of need? Where do you run? To whom do you turn? The Bible says, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come to me, Jesus said, right? All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, up on those hills, those high places were only false hopes. And Isaiah is saying in this present passage, they run to their high places, They'll be weeping and crying out to their idols and pagan gods for protection, but to no avail. Listen, they can weep, they can chant, they can sacrifice, they can shave their heads and wear all the sackcloth they want. Chemosh cannot help them. They're looking the wrong way. You see what he's saying there? You know, people seem to... When people's lives are falling apart, 
when their world comes crashing in, it's just not uncommon for people to get real religious. You know what I'm talking about? Um, but false worship, uh, getting spiritual, it doesn't help people. People seem to want to turn to anything and or about anyone other than the Lord. Uh, you know, I'll seek help anywhere but in the person of Jesus Christ. Though he should be the first place people run, he's usually the last resort. Why is it that people so often endure such radical hardship rather than just repent? Think about that. Now, there's another prophet who prophesies concerning Moab as well. It was the prophet Jeremiah. And he speaks of a reason that judgment will find them. Listen, keep your finger here in, in uh, Isaiah 15 and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 48. Okay, let's look together. Just make your way over there. I know you all have Bibles because we made sure in the beginning. So let's hear those pages. Come on, Isaiah chapter 48. And allow me to draw your attention here beginning in verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Do you understand what God is saying here? What's all this talk of uh, settling on his dregs? And uh, not being emptied from vessel to vessel. Well, the image that the Lord is drawing on is of the ancient process of refining and purifying wine, okay? And what they would do would be to put the wine, there they are, you know, they're, they're in the vat, the wine vat, right? And there's all the grapes from the vineyard that are stored, and they would just literally tramp, you've heard trampling out the vintage, right? Well, they would literally, that's what they do. They take their shoes, their sandals off, they get in there, they trample them all out, the grapes, the juice is squirting everywhere, and it gets deeper and deeper, and finally, there's just a bunch of, like, uh, grape skins and juice, and well, they, somehow they would transfer it from the vat, scoop it up, put it in a vessel, Okay. Now, as they put it in this vessel, uh, as they just let it sit there, those dregs, those uh, grape skins, and all the kind of impurities that were in the, the vat begin to settle down to the bottom, right? And so then what they would do is they would uh, take that vessel, and uh, they would just carefully then pour out 
the, the liquid, the wine that was uh, above it, and, and, and obviously some of those impurities, some of those dregs, some of those great would, would then, you know, transfer into the next vessel, but not near as many as it were, and so then they would, they would do it again. They would just let it sit there. Now there's less impurities, there's less dregs, they settle to the bottom, and, you, and then rinse and repeat. They would do this over and over again, pouring the wine from one vessel to another, removing the dregs, the impurities, and such, and eventually what would happen is you you would wind up with a very pure, a very fine kind of wine. But guys, timing was everything with this. It was a very kind of a delicate process, very delicate procedure, because if you let the impurity, if you let it settle too long, then the wine would begin to take the flavor of the dregs, of those impurities, and ultimately your entire batch would be ruined. So, what is God saying here? Well, he's saying that Moab has gotten accustomed to relative ease. I want you to think about that. He's gotten accustomed to relative ease. He has settled on his dregs. In other words, he's just sort of sitting there soaking in impurities, and he's taken on the flavor, taken on the scent of those impurities. Are you following me? So what's God's solution? He says, I will send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels. It's as though God is saying, Moab, I gave you time to seek me. I gave you time to, to, to turn to me, but rather than seeking to grow, rather than seeking to draw near to me, you got comfortable. Are you hearing me? Rather than seeking to grow, rather than seeking to draw near to me, God says, I gave you the chance. You got comfortable in relative ease. You decided, I'm not going to shake things up. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm just going to settle in right where I'm at. I kind of like this lane. And so God says, I'm going to take this process out of your hands. And I'm going to pour you out. Guys, God has this way of refining us. Of, shall we say, inspiring us to consider his way. Here's the short lesson. Be careful of growing too comfortable, of settling in and not seeking to grow in your relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that seasons of reprieve aren't a blessing from the Lord, but I am saying that growing comfortable, being at ease can be indicative of settling on the dregs and it can create a snare in your life. If we just sort of settle in, quit seeking the Lord, what happens? We begin to take on the flavor of the impurities of the world around us. And God will send in 
the wine workers. He will tip us over. He will pour us out from vessel to vessel that he might refine and purify our hearts and our lives. So, if you're in this place right now and you find yourself, things seem a bit unsettled in your life, you know, uh, sort of shaken up, and as a result, you've been praying, (laughs) you've been seeking God more than you have in a long time. Now, it's not fun. Can I just tell you, you should thank God for that. Because he loves you. And he's refining you. And he's causing you to draw near to him. He's causing you to seek after him. And he's purifying your life, you see. Well, back to Isaiah chapter 15 and verse 5. Isaiah writes, My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. For by the ascent of, how you say, Luhith or whatever, they will go up with weeping for in the way of Horonim, Horonim, I think, uh, they will raise up a cry of destruction. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate. For the green grass has withered away. The grass fails. There is nothing green. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. Guys, I trust, you know, through my slaughter of pronunciation, that you can still see, you can sense the total destruction that's coming upon Moab. Back in verse 4, Isaiah said that even the soldiers, you remember he said, even the soldiers will be weeping because they're unable to help in any way. He's like, matter of fact, just just look at it. He said uh, his life will be burdensome to him. A soldier's life would be burdened. In other words, there's nothing we can do. We can't stop this. We can't help you. And so they're feeling the extra measure of, of helplessness and desperation. Everyone will be fleeing. And not only will there be annihilation militarily, but their resources naturally would be depleted and diminished. The waters desolate, the green grass in which the flocks would graze, withered. And in verse 7, it's the picture of fleeing refugees just grabbing what they can carry and running for their lives. But what I want you to take home from this section is found in verse 5. My heart will cry out, For Moab, his fugitives flee to Zoar. Now, point of interest, Zoar uh, was the city that Lot Lot had actually fled to prior to his uh, making his way to the mountains when he and his daughters uh, escaped there. But what I want you to pick up on is the fact that we should have a heart for the lost. My heart will cry out for Moab. Those who are under the heavy hand of God's judgment, listen to me, they need our prayers, they need our compassion, our empathy. It is so weird to me how some people seem to get some kind of perverse pleasure in making sure that people know that they're headed for hell. You know, you see preachers like this, Uh, you see people standing on street corners yelling things like that 
People who will spend their hard-earned money uh, making sure that they inform people of that on the billboards as you drive down the highway and all. Is that the heart of God? What's the Bible say? Ezekiel 33, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Guys, that's the heart of God. Jesus came not to send people to hell, but to save people from hell. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God help us to share his heart for the lost. And in verse eight, for the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglaim, and it's wailing to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Demon, however you say, will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Demon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab, and on the remnant of the land. Now, this, this talk of... Uh, uh, of the cry that will go around uh, the borders of Moab, the idea is that everyone will see it, okay? Everyone will know exactly what's going on and that God's judgment has found them. It's going to be evident. It's going to be obvious. The borders, everyone will see it. And if they escape the armies, he says, they'll be faced with famine. If they get through that, Lions will be waiting. The rivers will be running red with blood. What's the point? Guys, hear it. There's no escape from the heavy hand of God's judgment. You cannot, listen again, don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And you can be sure, Numbers chapter 23 and verse 32. No, Numbers 32, verse 23. That your sin will find you out. Listen, we can't get away with it. We can't flee from it. The only solution is to be cleansed of it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. Okay, now, chapter 16. You guys still with me? All right then. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of its nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Now with this phrase, send the lamb to the ruler of Israel, what, what's happening? You got to know a little bit of the history of Israel to like, for this to like connect the dot for you, okay? Isaiah is calling on Moab to reinstitute the paying of tribute to Judah to come under Judah's covering, the covering of Israel and the God of Israel in that, it's that same kind of a call, okay? Now I mentioned to you earlier that David had subdued the Moabites. Remember, he defeated them, and he forced them to pay tribute to Israel. Now, in 2 Samuel, you discover uh, that having defeated them, he forced them to pay the tribute, but under uh, Ahab, now by this point, the, the kingdom had divided. There was Israel to the north and uh, Judah to the south. But under Ahab, we discover... 
in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, verses 4 and 5, that the Moabites would regularly render 100,000 lambs to the nation. Essentially, it served as taxation. It was a tribute. In other words, if you don't want any trouble with us, Moab, you don't want us to attack you, you don't want us to subdue you, you don't want us to make servants out of you, here's what you're going to do. You're going to pay tribute to our nation. You're going to give us 100,000 lambs. You're going to give us 100,000 skins of rams. You're going to, whatever the case may be, and that's what was going on. But when Ahab died, uh, sensing uh, weak leadership... Moab rebelled and ceased paying the tribute. Isaiah is saying, you guys need to get back to that. You guys need to resume that. The basic gist is come under our covering. Come to our God. Cease looking to your own idols, okay? The idea behind this wandering bird thrown out of the nest is a picture of vulnerability, helplessness, and confusion. He's saying, Moab, this is how you're going to feel under the hand of God's judgment. It's like you're vulnerable, you're helpless, you're confused, you don't know which way is up. Whatever the case may be, their only hope, he's saying, align yourself with Jerusalem, its king, and their God. Okay? Now... In verse 3, it says, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcast, do not betray him who escapes. Now, what are we seeing here? Again, we're seeing the compassion of the prophet uh, Isaiah. He addresses Judah here in verse 3. He says, hide the outcast, do not betray him who escapes. What he's saying is if Moabite makes it this far as they're fleeing their borders, they're, they, they, you know, the refugees are on the run, and they make it to Judah, don't turn them away. He's calling for Judah to be a place of refuge, uh, a place of protection, and a place of compassion. Guys, this is exactly how the church should be when people come in seeking refuge among God's people from the ramifications of their own ways. Do you understand what I'm saying? Here they are. And they may be younger, they may be older, their whole lives, and maybe, maybe they've rebelled, they're coming back, maybe their whole lives they've never been, and, and they're beginning to feel the weight of the ramifications of their own ways, and they've erred, whatever the case may be. They may not be able to articulate it this way, but they feel the heavy hand of God's judgment upon them, and so they come, and they're looking for a reprieve. They're looking for a place uh, of refuge. They don't know what to do. Right? It's like, I'm confused. I'm helpless. I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. So I come to church. And the church should be a place that receives the outcast. Um, that doesn't betray him who escapes, but leads them in repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. you understand? Now, uh, in verse 4, look at this. This is a strange interesting kind of curious turn. He says, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. 
the oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, underline it, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now, guys, I need you to stick with me here, okay? You guys with me? I have your attention, please. We've mentioned again and again the principle of prophetic telescoping, right? This concept, this idea, uh, and how the prophets would write, and in the course of a single verse, a prophet might jump hundreds, even thousands of years, and then in the corresponding verses, snap right back to their historical setting, whatever it may be. And we've given examples of this in the past. Time will forbid us to do it right here, right now. Uh, but this is one of those instances. And it's kind of mind-blowing how that Isaiah is pleading with Judah to receive the outcasts of Moab, and then he turns right around, and, and God through him, and he writes, let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. Think about that. The gist is, Moab needs refuge now, but Israel will need refuge later. So we'll receive you now, but you'll need to receive us then. Do you see what I'm saying? Now this mention of the spoiler uh, is, I believe, a reference to the Antichrist. Okay? The Bible is clear this is where you've got to stick with me because I don't have time to develop every point and every principle. But the Bible is clear that after the rapture of the church and the signing of the peace agreement with Israel, okay, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, that God will resume, we've talked about this before, there is a prophetic timetable that God established with the nation of Israel to bring an end to everything, to wrap everything up, to close everything down, the end of world history as we know it, to enter into the millennial kingdom, and you know, all, the end of all things. And it's, it's, a, it's a timetable that revolves around 77-year periods with the nation of Israel. You discover this in Daniel chapter 9. And you remember when Christ came, he said after 69 sevens uh, that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And so after 69 of those seven-year periods, Jesus came, he was crucified, he was cut off, not for himself, for you and for me, and the timetable, boom, stopped. Okay, the time clock stopped because Jesus said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Yes, he was talking about the Gentile. He would call out the church. This is the age of the church, the dispensation of grace, Paul refers to it as. But when the signing of this peace, after the rapture, the signing of this peace agreement with Israel, the, the prophetic timetable, the 70th seven-year period of time, the final seven-year period, period of human history on this side of the millennial kingdom will begin. Okay? Now, three and a half years into this covenant, the signing of this agreement, which, you know, 
I believe will allow the, 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 the temple sacrifice, and if they haven't already rebuilt the temple, it'll allow for the rebuilding of the temple. The wall will go down, cutting off the rock, the Dome of the Rock Mosque, and they'll build their temple out there, and they'll have the court of the Gentiles. Ezekiel talks about it. I mean, the whole thing, okay? But three and a half years into this covenant, this peace agreement, the Antichrist will break the covenant, Okay, Paul told the Thessalonians, you can write it down, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that this man, right, the son of perdition, the beast, the spoiler, uh, the one who rules in his own name, the extortioner that we're seeing here, uh, the one who is most popular. The Bible has many names for him, okay? But the most popular name is the Antichrist, right? But Paul tells us, that he will enter into the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. There he will proclaim to be God. He will demand to be worshipped as God. And it's what Jesus referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. You guys ready to take one more leap into your, uh, your, your Bible text here? Put your finger here. Turn with me quickly, guys. I'm going to keep this short for you, but Matthew chapter 24, okay? Let's turn one more time to Matthew chapter 24. And allow me to draw your attention, Matthew 24, verse 15, okay? Verse 15 and following. We'll read through verse 22. Jesus says, therefore, when you see... The abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. This is the Antichrist going into the holy place, uh, proclaiming to be God, demanding to be worshipped as God. This is an incredible blasphemy, okay? When you see this, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Jews wouldn't go anywhere on the Sabbath. They wouldn't flee. They wouldn't run. And uh, his proves there would be nations that would invade the nation of Israel on the Sabbath because they could just level them and destroy them. They wouldn't fight back. So Jesus says, you need to pray that when this happens, it's not a Sabbath day, okay? Because he says, look what he says, for then there will be such great tribulation, there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world. Think about that statement. Has this world seen some pretty incredible tribulation? People in this world have, been, have suffered tremendously, the Jews in particular. But what's Jesus say? He says, I'm telling you what's going to happen on this day when this happens. You, you ain't seen nothing like this. Now look. He says, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, in other words, if it just was to carry out its natural curve, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So, when this man, the Antichrist, commits this blasphemy, 
He will unleash a torrent of persecution upon the Jews unlike this world has ever seen. That's why Jesus said, don't go back in your house. Don't come home from work. You just run. And this place that Isaiah mentions here in verse 1 of chapter 16, the Selah or Selah, however you say, the, the translation, what's that word mean? It means rock. It's the rock city of Petra that's in view here, guys. And this is why many people, and I believe it's solid rationale, believe together with Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14 that many of the Jews, when they escape, will go into this territory this rock city of Petra uh, from that time, and they will harbor there, they will find refuge there for three and a half years until Jesus returns for them and establishes his throne upon the earth. And that's what Isaiah is talking about in verse 5 of chapter 16. In mercy, right, the throne will be established, and one, who is the one? Messiah. He's talking about Jesus Christ. We'll sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now, verse 6, we have heard of the pride. Guys, I'm sorry. I'm trying to hurry through this for you. We have heard of the, and I'm sorry that I said I'm sorry, Kyle. <laughs> Kyle has exhorted me many times, never apologize for giving out God's word. So I'm sorry that I said I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Is that a way of saying sorry, not sorry? I don't know. I don't. But verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath because his lies shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Ker, uh, Hereseth. You shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish in the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer the wa and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Remember when I told you of the relative comfort of Moab in our reference there in Jeremiah? We talked about how he'd settled on, he kind of settled in. Um, here, God gives the initial reason, back here in verse uh, 6, he gives the initial reason for the judgment that will find them. He says it's pride. Four times in verse 6, we see pride, proud, haughtiness, and pride. Can I tell you something? God is faithful to confront us with our sin. Confrontation, it's something that a lot of people struggle with. But I want you to realize God has no problem with it. Okay? He says, hey, here's the problem. And with that, not only do we know exactly why the judgment's coming, okay, but we also have an opportunity to repent. He says, here's what's going on. Here's what I found in you. And here's what you need to turn from. Okay? And God used the illustration of purifying wine in, uh, in Jeremiah 48 
Moab took great pride in their vineyards. I, I trust you're kind of picking up on that because he talks here about their, uh, their vines and all. Uh, but uh, God will see to it that everything they took pride would be in would be destroyed. If we won't humble ourselves, then God will see to it that we're humbled. Now look at verse 9. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibmah uh, with the weeping of Jazer, and I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliela. For battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. In other words, they're going to be raided through and destroyed. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. And in the vineyards, there will be no singing. No, no, you know, because harvest time was a, was a wonderful, a joyous time. He says, no, there's not going to be any shouting. No treaders will tread out the wine in the presses. I have made the shouting cease. Therefore, my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Ker, uh, Hariz or Hares. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. Again, Isaiah is faithful to the message Judgment is coming. Destruction is inevitable. But there's no perverse pleasure in his proclamation. His heart is broken for what's to become them. And here we see the added element of grief. Look at verse 12, guys. It shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This, guys, is that heart-rending reality of seeing people grope for some kind of reprieve, but looking for answers in the wrong places, okay? They go to their sanctuary to pray, but do not prevail. You know, you're watching your friend, you're watching your coworker, you're watching your child, you're watching your spouse or your parent or whatever the case may be, going through such turbulence, such tribulation, such desperation, heartache, heartbreak, tough times and trials, and they're going to this place or they're going to that person. You know, maybe they're even trying religion, but they don't prevail because they won't turn to the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? It's not going to work. Listen to me. Maybe this is a word for someone here today or maybe you out there, wherever the case may be. It's not going to work if you keep trying things your way. Okay? You've got to come God's way. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. God has made it clear. Family, don't waste your time going down dead-end roads. Come to Jesus Christ. God has made it as simple as possible. There's only one way. You can't mess that up. You can't take a wrong turn. You can't miss a detail. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you see. In verse 13 and 14, and uh, Abby, if you want to make your way up, we read, This is the word of the Lord, or which the Lord has spoken concerning 
Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Family, this again is the mercy of God. He's telling them, I mean, look at this. He's telling them exactly when judgment will come. And he's even telling them, he's like, look, within three years, I'm telling you right now, within three years, this is going to happen. Moab will be destroyed. And the remnant that's even left will be so small, will be so feeble. There won't even be many of you who survive. Translation, now is the time to get right with God, okay? The crazy thing is that within 100 years or so of this, which was when Jeremiah, Jeremiah would prophesy about 100 years after Isaiah, we already read, they would be settling right back into their wicked ways. You've heard the phrase to the effect, those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Yes? Well, guys, we see this all the time. Someone going through a rough season, they, they seem to come to their senses. They start seeking the Lord. They start turning from sin. And then as their life begins to lighten up, what happens? They drift right back in to those same patterns that put them in that place to begin with. God would have us learn our lesson the first time and bring forth fruit, the Bible says, that remains. You see that? In other words, let's not repeat past sin. Okay? Draw near to God. Uh, press forward in the grace of God. Keep your eyes on things above and follow Jesus Christ with all your heart. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, with all your soul. And then love others. As I'm going to tell you, you love God, you love others, you'll change the world. Amen.